get to tomorrow. Oh, it'll be cumulative and I'll be trying to wake the dead otherwise tomorrow morning. You know that little ditty, the color of my pastor's eyes, I cannot define. For when he prays, he closes his, and when he preaches, I close mine. So I'm aware of that. You've had a big meal. You've had a busy day, lots of fresh air. And my task is, by the grace of God, to keep you awake. And uh, I'd never kind of feel anybody gets blessing by being asleep in a service, and it kind of you get the spiritual blessing just by being there. So I'll be uh, hoping to engage your uh, hearts and your minds as we turn again to uh, this uh, amazing, rip-roaring story of, uh, of Joseph. And would you come with me, please, this evening to um, a, a larger section. We're going to read some of uh, a selection of verses now as we, we come into, uh, into the, the life of Joseph and to chapter 39. And we read this. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, brought, bought him from the Ishmaelites who was, had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. With his master, when his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. And on goes the narrative, except that a certain lady appears, Potiphar's wife, and she seeks to seduce him. It's the theme of Mrs. Robinson and all that kind of stuff, an older woman trying to get a hold of this uh, well-built, it says, uh, verse 7, verse 6, this well-built and handsome young man. And he resists her uh, approaches, and the result of that, after uh, he runs away from her, she keeps his cloak till the master comes home, and then she tells the master, verse 17, that Hebrew slave you brought came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. And when his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. And Joseph's master took him and put him in prison. The place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him, and he showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warder. So the warder put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warder paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Sometime later, chapter 40, verse 1, the cupbearer and the baker of the of the king of Egypt offended their master and the king of Egypt Pharaoh was angry with his two officials the chief cupbearer and the chief baker and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard and in the same prison where Joseph was confined and the captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph and he attended them and then you know what happens they both start having interesting dreams <laughs> and yeah Joseph honestly tells it as a, as it is he gives a, a favorable uh, word to one of them and an unfavorable to another. That's uh, really important, isn't it? To be a truth teller. You know, it's really sad, maybe one or two of you in medicine, and uh, you know, when somebody, it's difficult, I know, but you know, a patient says, is this terminal? Doctor, how long have I got? One of my close friends is a consultant uh, in, in that whole area of uh, those last days of life. And he gets great opportunities to pray for folk. And they say, how long have I got, doctor? And as a palliative care consultant, he can't predict the day and the hour precisely, but he can tell them, this is terminal. He's telling the truth. And Joseph tells the truth to a man who is condemned because it gives him time, I suspect, to repent. He tells the good news, you're going to be restored, and the bad news. The gospel's a bit like that, isn't it? The gospel is both good and bad news. We are the savior of life unto life for some and the savior of death unto death for others. Well, anyway, you know the story. And uh, the third day was Pharaoh's birthday, verse 20. 
and he gave a feast for all his officials, and he lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of his officials. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position so that he once again put the cup into Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had said to them in his interpretation. And Joseph's final words was, hey, when you get out of here, put in a good word for me. Don't forget me. You know, you've ever been there? I'll never forget what's his name. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. Unless we didn't get the rub of it, he forgot him. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. And the rest is history. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. May it now be food for our souls. May it be medicine for our various spiritual ills. And may it be comfort and strength and encouragement on this crazy and demanding and exciting and sometimes messed upable journey of faith, we pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, our, our title tonight is the, basically Living with Trials. It's kind of the stuff of the trials of life of any David Attenborough kind of uh, program, isn't it? Here are the, uh, they, they were long my favorites as an illustration, long, long, long before they became a famous advert. But you know, the Kalahari Desert meerkats. Don't you just love those characters? Shimples, you know, whatever. And he's got a documentary on them. Or, or the, the mating habits of, you know, the indigenous land crabs on Christmas Island in the Pacific, or, or, or the wolf packs in the Antarctic. I mean, amazing stuff of how through, in the animal kingdom and elsewhere, there are the trials of life through which they survive. And of course, don't know if the animals think they're having trials of life. But we are reflective beings, and we know when we're going through the mill. What's this got to do with anything? Well, it's just really just a, a reminder of the second time I tried to learn to water ski. It's just a silly illustration, really. I, I, my friends had heard about my first abortive attempt, and there I was in Ulster, which has become a second home after, over the last 30 years. My first half of my life, it was the south of Ireland, but the second half... It sort of has become Ulster. And there I was, and my friend said, don't worry, Steve, we'll get you up. We'll go down the River Ban. And we went down the River Ban, which is not very wide where it was. And there was the big, you know, power boat and everything else. And there, firstly, Steve, you need this regulation wetsuit. And the, out came the rubberized wetsuit. And I looked at this wetsuit, and I looked at me, and I said, how does all this get into that? <laughs> because I tried before, friction. And my friend said, oh, that's not a problem, Steve. You just take this plastic bag with you, and you put the plastic bag over your foot, and you'll be like a hot knife into butter, which translated into English means it will be rather easily accomplished. You still there? <laughs> so I went over to the men's changing room, stripped off, left just, you know, cosy on a sunny underneath, and then I got the rubberized suit, and I aimed and brought the plastic bag around, and he was dead right. It just went on just like that. And it was then I realized I put my leg through the armhole. <laughs> and for the next what felt like half an hour, it was probably five minutes, I'm rolling around on the floor trying to get this thing off. And people are coming in, guys coming in thinking, you know, is he having a fit or something? And, and you're only trying to look cool when you feel a total idiot and going, <laughs> because they told me how to get into the thing and they give me no instructions on how to get out of it. And of course, such things are a metaphor, aren't they, of life. You, you're just doing something. You, know, you stub your toe, you turn a corner, you take the wing mirror off your car, or something disastrous happens to you. The only two certainties said Benjamin Franklin in the 18th century are death and taxes. <laughs> but life is uncertain. 
was talking yesterday, there's a local farmer popped in, lovely guy, and uh, he was just talking about the crops this year. And, and I was very taken by how laid back he was about what's happened. He was talking about the grain, it's soaked and you can't pull it in and they're spending so much money on oil to, to be able to heat stuff to, to dry the grain out because otherwise they can't store it, it's going to rot and everything else. But he was very philosophical because as a farmer, he said, oh, you just get used to getting used to the unexpected. And so he diversifies. And if the crop's failing there, well, the strawberries are doing well. And if that's not going well, well, he's got a bit of bed and breakfast going on the side. Because life's like that. It, it's, it's not, and then we lived all happily ever after. It has an, a, a way of going pear-shaped. Whether it's a funny, stupid Englishman trying to get into an, an Ulster wetsuit or something much more catastrophic in its consequences. And as we come here to the, the narrative, we are being faced with some of the trials of life of Joseph. Here's uh, the first thing I want us to begin to get our heads around. Living with trials, warning. Warning. Trials are necessary. Really? Challenges, changes, setbacks, heartbreaks, shattered dreams, hopes that have now faded into nightmares. It's the stuff of life, isn't it? At the obstetrics unit in Poole Hospital, they have a warning up. I don't know if it's still there. And it says, warning, the first 20 minutes of life can be critical. And a wag wrote underneath, the last 20 can be a bit dodgy as well. That's life, isn't it? From Genesis to its Exodus, it is precarious. And what we're seeing happening here is for the next 20 years or so, in this narrative that we skimmed over from 17 to when he's 39. Joseph's not going to see his family. And until he's 30, for 13 years, Joseph is going to be out of the way. He's going to be a slave. He's going to be in prison. And life has gone massively pear-shaped for him. I want you to turn to just uh, a cross-reference in the book of James. And... Uh, We'll return to it just to add a bit presently. Because many of us <coughs> think, thanks for nothing, James, towards the end of our New Testaments in our Bibles. He says, consider it, James chapter 1, verse 2, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. James says, trials come so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Really? These are images from a blast furnace. Here's metal in its uh, molten state. This is a refiner's fire. This is intense heat being applied to metal so that when it moves, and of course if it's gold, then you have to carefully do it so that it's tested and it's tried. You don't want to spoil it and you keep refining the gold and getting all the impurities out, the dross, etc. What was wrong with Joseph when he was 17? He had these mega big dreams and everybody bowing down to him and he's going to be the head honcho. What was wrong with him? He was not what James talks about. He was not complete. He was not mature. The worst thing that can happen to a man or a woman in Christian ministry 
is they find fame and fortune and success too early. It can blow your head off. It can happen generally in life as well. That's the truth. So success comes too quickly and too easily. Look, look at some of the, the famous folk we know in the pop world, sports or whatever. Many of them just can't handle the success that comes their way. And God has a way of maturing us, believe it or not, through trials. The very things that we don't want, we want to just take it easy or whatever, are the very things that we fear may break us that God in His sovereign purposes wants to use to make us. And what we find happening in the life of Joseph is this, this process going on whereby he is to become mature, he's to be put together. At 17, he's not ready. At 30 years of age, when he steps on into Pharaoh's court, he is the finished product ready to be the head honcho, the second in command of all of Egypt with massive ability and organizational skills to make sure that this nation not only survives seven years of good stuff, but seven years of famine and are able to feed others. And of course, behind that is the bigger story that he's going to be the savior and the, the provider for his people. But he knows nothing of that in these dark days in prison and in slavery. But God has got a purpose for him and he's learning skills and abilities out of the way that God is going to use on a public stage to bless his people and bring his kingdom in. Why does God have to use trials? Because in every one of our lives there are things that are just uh, shouldn't be there. I don't know what happened when the artist created this uh, stallion here. But I remember hearing a yarn about a guy who had a big block of marble out of which he made a stallion like that. And somebody said to him, to the artist, how'd you create that? I mean, how'd you do it? How'd you make that out of a block of marble or whatever you want to use? And he said, oh, it's very easy, really. He said, I just started chipping away. And everything that didn't look like a stallion, I removed. Till he's left with a stallion. Are you still there? God has a purpose in salvation for you and me. It's a wonderful thing to be forgiven and to be dragged out of the gutter and sewer of lostness by God's mighty redemption. But that's not the end of the process. You know, sometimes, because I'm listening to all the students giving their testimonies and they come in and have a coffee with me, you know, I hear, you know, dramatic stories. Before I was a Christian, you know, I used to beat the wife. I was a, a big-time crook. I used to, you know, rob banks. I was into crack cocaine, you know. And then when I was five, I became a Christian. <laughs> Pardon. And then what? I mean, imagine if your whole life was, and then on the 17th of March, St. Paddy's Day, I was born, which I was. Yeah, well, you know, oh, I was nine months in my mother's womb. Oh, I don't know what I thought about. Yeah, but what happened after you were born? When I was a kid in my native Liverpool, my dad was a bus driver. Eventually, I worked in the offices. I used to be part of the dead wood there, as he called them. People used to phone up and say, hey, lad, how long will the next bus be? And we'd say the same length as the last one, mate, because we're all kind of <laughs> budding John Bishops in Liverpool. But when I was a younger kid, my dad, now and again, would uh, say, now you meet me at the bottom of Bailey Road at seven minutes past two, thereabouts, don't be late, and along he'd come in E1 or E2 or E3, <laughs> not E.T., <laughs> but they, some of them looked like E.T., some extraterrestrial, because we just had Leyland back-ender buses, and we just had, uh, you know, AEC buses. But then someone in the works in Edge Lane, Liverpool, decided we need a new fleet of buses. So they'd road test out these experimental one, experimental two, experimental three buses. And someday, one day, I remember along came a big red one. It was longer than the average bus. 
It was an RML from London. It was your route master length from bus, Gov. Very good. And we jumped on the back. And it was on, and my dad was driving it. And then another day, a Leyland Atlantean pulled up and shoom, opened the front doors. And I stepped on. It was a front loader with doors. And then one day, the chief engineer, probably here, Ernest Horton, with whom I worked, with his rolling stock engineer and his works manager said, so what is going to be the, the bus? What's going to be the prototype? We've had the prototype. What's going to be the fleet now? And somebody said, you know what? We have those route master length and buses. You're still going to have to put conductors on the back. If we got Leyland Atlanteans, maybe in the future, they could go one, we'd say person today, one man operated. Now, when they did do one man operations in Liverpool, they used to also put conductors on to continue to ride shotgun, but that's another story, okay? Still there, okay. Because you see, Somebody decided that this bus, the Leyland Atlantean, was the prototype. It was the one we were going to model all the fleet on. And soon, dozens and scores and hundreds of Leyland Atlanteans began to circulate around the city of Liverpool. God has a prototype for the human race. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is the perfect human being. You have never met, outside of Jesus Christ, a perfect human being. You know that phrase, to err is human, to forgive is divine. Do you know that phrase? Biggest load of theological toss you've ever heard in your life. Do you know why? Because if to err, to make a mistake, is human, then Jesus wasn't, because <laughs> he didn't sin. He never sinned. He never had to pray a Father, forgive me. He did no sin. He knew no sin in him. His no sin is the consistent witness of the New Testament. He was perfect. So if to be human is to err, then he wasn't perfect. And if he wasn't human, therefore, because he didn't sin, then he didn't die for us. So goodbye, Christianity. But the truth is, sin doesn't make you real, and sin doesn't make you authentic. Sin robs you of your humanity. It dehumanizes you. Adam was a perfect human being in the garden. When he sinned, he started to become subhuman. It's the kind of picture C.S. Lewis uses in, in uh, Voyage to Venus, part of his space trilogy, of the person who he calls the unman. And the further away from God people get, the more dehumanized they become. And the more like Jesus Christ people become, the more humanized they become, the more authentically the prototype that God always intended you to, be, to become. So as Romans 8 says, the purpose of salvation is that you and I may be conformed to the image of God's Son. So we're not just some kind of tatty old backender, but God says, no, I've got a Leyland Atlantean this is going to be the model for the human race. Wow. When those uh, Leyland Atlanteans came, and they started circulating, then they decided to make them one person operated. They then decided to have to modify them further, so they started putting an extra door in the back. And they kept working on them and perfecting them until eventually you know, this was going to continue to be how they'd kick them out. They were never quite the finished article. You're not quite the finished article yet, are you? C.H. Spurgeon, the famous Baptist pastor from the 19th century, said he only ever met one perfect man. He was a perfect nuisance. <laughs> <laughs> so, you're not there yet. Joseph wasn't there yet. At 17, he wasn't ready to handle what was coming his way. But there's a problem with trials. If you flick back to James 1, I just want you to see what it is. Because trials are dangerous things. If you read on in the narrative, in verse 12, he says, 
Uh, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he's dragged away and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Now, do you see that word there, uh, temptation? We could just translate it just the same. So when anyone is trialed, we can use that, no one should say, God is trialing me, for God cannot be trialed by evil, nor does he trial anyone. What? Well, in the Greek language, the word trial and the word temptation is exactly the same, pirasmos. What? Hmm. What does that mean? Well, there's a red flag there, and there are three folk in the water. We're going to meet them, or at least what they represent in a moment. Because, you see, you see nothing at the moment until this moves on. There we go. Danger. Temptations are normal. Here's the problem, you see. When you face a trial, whatever it is, you lose your job, don't get the results you thought you should get, don't get that promotion, your health breaks down, somebody near and dear is ill, you go through bereavement, the church lets you down, Christians aren't perfect, have a bout of depression, a hundred things. Those trials that God wants to use to make you more like Jesus you will find simultaneously the devil wants to use to destroy you. That which God wants to take and use to make you, the trial, is the very thing that the devil wants to turn around to make it into a temptation. You can see that in the book of Job. God allows these trials to come his way. He loses his, his health, his wealth, and his family. And the temptation then is to curse God and die, as his wife says. And he keeps hanging on in there through the temptation. So on the one side, God is using the trial to perfect Job. And the devil is alongside using the same trial to try and deflect Job from the purposes of God. The thing that God wants to use to make you is the thing that the devil will use to break you. We all know the phrase, don't we? The same sun can melt the ice and harden the clay. That's what trials are like. And they can flip over into temptation. Well, if this is how God's treating me, then I'm out of here. I mean, if this is how God treats people who sought to follow him and everything else, and all this disaster's come to me, then, then forget it. People do that all the time. Um, I've read the Bible through countless times. This side of heaven, God gives us no money-back guarantees that if we follow him, if we're faithful, everything will be a perpetual 32-teeth grin. We have to debunk some of the nonsense that comes on the God channels and the like, telling us that if we really are faithful to God, we'll be healthy, wealthy, wise. We can name it, claim it, frame it, and then if we don't get it, blame it on our granny for playing around with a Ouija board. We really need to get our heads around this. Remember some years ago preaching someone in the States and was talking about, you know, when trials come and it, this part of Atlanta had just been hit by a, a, a hurricane, cyclone, done a lot of damage. He said, when the, when, when, when the hurricane came along, the cyclone came along, it didn't say, here's a Christian house, <coughs> turn right, there's a Christian house, turn left, miss it, turn left, and then, hey, let's go get the pagans. And the pastor said to me afterwards, some of my folk would be very shocked by what you said this morning. I said, but I told you that Jesus said the difference between the wise man who built his house upon, upon the rock and the foolish man who built his house upon the sand was very simple. They were both subjected to the same phenomena. The rain came down and the floods came up and the winds beat and one stood and the other fell. They didn't say, well, you know, that's a Christian home. We won't rain on that one. 
And in this fall, of course, he's got he's a little disclaimer here. Of course, in the Lord's mercy, he can keep us from anything. And so often he preserves us in ways we never knew. And again and again and again, this is just the truth. Godliness is good for you and following the Lord is good for you. And you'll probably live about 10 years longer if you are religious. That's just a fact of life. Everybody who's religious, you know, Christian, longing to go to heaven, tend to stay here a lot longer. Godliness is good for you. But don't run away with the nonsense that when you're going through it, God's getting even with you. God got even with us at the cross. And God uses trials to perfect us, and the devil uses trials to deflect us and turns them into temptations. And it's, it's the sooner we get that onto our frontal lobes, we live in a fallen, broken world. And it's unfair and it's unjust. Go through Joseph's life, who is will in a moment. And there's so much ammunition there for him to conclude that God doesn't care and God doesn't love him. But all the time he does. Because he's his special child. And I was trying to be sensitive because I've chatted to Paul and Sarah, but I remember that day when I sat with my pal, a GP, RGP, my squash partner. And I said, Tony, don't flap around with me anymore. I had a five-month-old son and I had a wife in big trouble. I said, I want to know, because I've punted around on this, amateur diagnosticians are us, does my wife have multiple sclerosis? And May... 1979, my sky fell in. Bang! I've seen wheelchairs and death. And what am I going to do? And the big temptation is to hear the voice saying, well, that's what you get for being a minister, isn't it? That's what you get for all those years of theological study, isn't it? That's what you get for really spending and being spent for Jesus. You didn't get much back from that, did you? I was right on the cusp of resigning from ministry in a Baptist church in East London. I had no idea how we were going to get through. I was, I was hacked off. And underneath, I was a bit hacked off with God. I, I was at a minister's fraternal, many hundreds there. And one of my mates, you know, all the charismatic, you know, some folk are charismatic and some folk are asthmatic, aren't they? And some are not even hoovermatic. Well, he'd be almost over that way and almost arthritic, you know. So charismatic arthritic you know on the spectrum he's well over here wow Whew. like one of my most non-charismatic mates so he suddenly shot past me he said i can't stop i've got a word for you don't do it i said pardon he said i'm telling you from the lord don't do it and then dashed away and i thought flipping heck that must be a word from god <laughs> he knew nothing about what was going on bang by the grace of god we've had since then 30 plus rip-roaring years of God's mercy, goodness, and grace. Our favorite couplet from a great hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, Strength for Today, and Bright Hope for Tomorrow. Because actually, if you knew it, you've only got two days you need to bother about. Every one of us. Do you know this? If you don't get this again onto your frontal lobes, you're dead meat in the trials of life. I've only got two dates in my diary. Today and the day I meet the Lord. And if I let this day block that day out, I'm in big trouble. But if I let that day, when I'm going to see the Lord, affect my today, have I got strength for today? Yep. Have I got bright hope for tomorrow? The Lord might come back tomorrow, mightn't he? And don't you be sitting there saying, oh, no, he wouldn't. How dare you know what the angels don't know? I mean, you may not have to turn up and listen to me for a fourth time. <laughs> You're really praying for the second coming now. See the point? Uh, what the devil wants to use to destroy you is God using to make you something you could never be. So how does it work out? Well, Joseph faces a number of temptations. The first is just perverse families. I mean, imagine, imagine having a family like Joseph's. You think you've got problems. 
What a highly dysfunctional lot. Rejection, abuse, internecine strife, sibling rivalry, intrigue, lies, and on the face of it, fratricide, brotherly murder. So much for his dreams, huh? <laughs> what a family. Nobody has a perfect one. Again, uh, one of those Adrian Plass books, he, he's got some image of uh, what he calls the Swiss family Christian. You know, I get their newsletters every Christmas. Our Johnny's doing so well at uh, Oxford. In fact, uh, although he's only 18, they're probably going to make him professor of law by the time he graduates. Now, little Charlene, she's struggling a bit because uh, the teachers don't always understand what a genius they've got on their hands. Um, it is a bit of a problem. She, she did get 12 starred A's, but unfortunately, she just got an A in music on her 13th, and that was unlucky because, um, well, maybe she won't now become an international musical conductor. Little Timmy, of course, he's only four, but he's already uh, learning um, Am Amharic. He's added that to his Aramaic studies, and we confidently expect, uh, when he's finished uh, translating the Greek New Testament, by the time he goes to school, that um, he may not have to go at all. Charles is doing very well in the city. Um, despite all the cutbacks, um, we haven't yet had to sell the yacht and, uh, and our fifth mansion. And uh, his bonus was cut this year. He only got 10.2 million, but as a Christian, he's thinking of tithing it. Brackets, please send me, you know, tithe. Thank you very much, end of bracket. And um, as for me, Loretta, well, you know, I... And then you read all these wonderful things she does before breakfast. Superwoman, you know, Wonder Woman. Wow, and you read it and you think, wow, what a family. Please, Lord, deliver me from such. Is your family like that? In your family that are in-laws and that are outlaws, right? <laughs> that are in mine. The Swiss family Christian, 32 teeth grin, and God answers our prayers even before we utter them because we've got that relationship, just this hotline to God. Never, never a cloudy day. What a load of bilge. I don't know what your family's like. I just thank God that by the grace of God, they are what they are, my family. And coming from a non-Christian home, there's a wide family spectrum who are yet to know Jesus Christ, the Savior and Lord. Wow. I say, I, I don't have to watch EastEnders or Coronation Street. We have it just played out in the drama of my wider family and my wife's as well. You got perverse family? Well, cheer up. And by the way, there's a verse, you know, that kills Christian parents when your kids screw up. It's Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. Some of these folk who write books on the Bible and how to, uh, you know, have a wonderful, successful home really need to learn to read the Bible first. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart therefrom. Now, let's put it together for you. Your child has departed from the faith, yes. The problem's in you, you know. Did you ever use corporal punishment? No. Oh, that's the reason. Spur the rod and spoil the child. Yes. Oh, you were cruel to your child. You can't win, you know what I mean? Um... If you want another translation from the Hebrew, it's this. Train up a child in the way he'd go. Let little Johnny have his way like Dr. Spock, not the guy with pointy ears, but the child psychologist in America who ruined many families and then recanted just before he died. Uh, let, let your little Johnny go his way, and when he's old, he'll still be doing the same. That's slightly different, isn't it? By the way, Proverbs is an odd book, isn't it, to, to dig big principles of family life out without handling Scripture correctly. Because, you know, like Proverbs 26, verse 4 says, don't answer a fool according to his folly. And the next verse says, answer a fool according to his folly. I remember once uh, with a class saying to them, what do you make of this verse? Do not answer a fool according to his folly, trying to lead him into this honey trap. And, and one guy said, well, we're, we're not answering you. <laughs> I said, uh, you know, he who laughs last is the lecturer who's marking your term paper. Don't have a nice day. <laughs> Too many cooks, what do they do? Many hands make 
That's a contradiction, isn't it? And it's like that in Proverbs. Some, there are promises, but there's often precepts, and principles. So sometimes you have to answer the fool according to his folly, and other times you have to ignore him. That's wisdom, you see. It's not one size fits all. Mark Twain was right, wasn't it? For the, the man whose only implement is a hammer, every problem is a nail. Oh, I just did it. Oh, I just did it. The Bible doesn't work like that. The Bible's not just like one string. It's a whole concert keyboard. It's, a, it's that big organ and more at the Royal Albert Hall. You can pull out all the stops and all the little nuances. Wow. And if you've got a perverse family, you know this. God ain't through with them yet. And here's the other thing. What was wrong with the prodigal's father? Now, today, if you're doing a makeover, I mean, you say, well, it was the prodigal's father. I mean, that's, it was, he was the problem. I mean, he dro- he let the, I mean, he drove the boy away. Did he? What was wrong with the prodigal's dad? And be careful how you answer, because you'll be blaming God for everything in a minute. There was nothing wrong with him. The problem was with the prodigal, wasn't it? Could you please reply? And sometimes you may be the most, inverted commas, perfect. You've done your best parent in the world. And your kids screw up. So please, in the name of Jesus, get rid of some of that guilt. Yeah, if you've screwed up, you've done things you know are wrong. Well, you better come clean with God. But no parent is perfect. You need to know that. And you can turn it around the other way. Maybe you have been the object, as we touched on before, of lousy parenting. One of our most difficult weeks in college is when we do self-understanding and then we talk about boundaries. The number of younger and older women who've been sexually abused is absolutely horrendous. I remember one girl years ago on the edge of alcoholism, we discovered. She was just working for the college. (sighs) Because of her maternal grandfather had abused her sexually. And she couldn't do anything about it because now he died. And she had no way of validating what she'd done. I mean, I don't know what's going on with Jimmy Savile and all that stuff. I have no idea. I'm I'm not prejudging anything. But that stuff happens, doesn't it? And it leaves wounds and scars on the victims. As I, as a pastor and I, as a college principal, know oh so well. And we have a God, as we've sung about, who heals our brokenness. Who deals not only with our sins, but the sins committed against us. Who's in the reclamation business the restorative business, perverse families. Is that your problem? There's another temptation too. Promiscuous colleagues. This is the story of uh, the femme fatale in Genesis 39. Um, She's far more dangerous than Tamar back in Genesis 38. This is an experienced female seductress. This is not uh, male chauvinism now being given free reign, ladies. We had a smack at uh, Judah for his uh, male chauvinist pigness and sexual exploitation in the last session. I only met her once or twice. The second time I met her, over in Ulster, she came over all bouncy, flouncy, fun, 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 and something in my spirit just went, wow. That particular lady, whose name escapes me, I'm glad to say, has been responsible for defrocking a number of ministers. Wow. She's used her sexual magnetism and chemistry to bring chaos and hurt and pain into homes and professes to be a Christian. I don't know what book she reads. 
but it isn't this one. And here's this Mrs. Robinson pick woman seeking to seduce Joseph. And he keeps fleeing away. You see, when we're confronted by temptation, sometimes it's fight and sometimes it's flight. That's why Paul says to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.22, flee also youthful lusts. And some of us are in positions, we can't help it, where we work and everything else, where we are rubbing shoulders with those of the opposite sex and there will be times when we talk about same-sex attraction earlier, well, you know, the heterosexual attraction goes on all the time as well. So therefore, I'm, I'm to give full vent to my attractions, am I? No. Temptations, as I've said before, are not there to be enjoyed and capitulated to. They are there to be fought against. And of course, Joseph eventually goes pear-shaped. She grabs his, his cloak is left behind, and then she stitches him up with her husband. Have you ever wondered, that's why I paused in the narrative, have you ever wondered why Potiphar didn't just have him executed for attempted rape? He's a slave, he's got no rights. Or have you ever wondered why Potiphar just didn't say, right, you, into the deepest dungeon I can find, go into that sewer. He puts him in the, the place where the king's prisoners are kept, special category prisoners. Don't you find that amazing? Why does he do that? Well, you might say, well, it's the overarching providence of God to put Joseph in the right place at the right time with the right people to influence them. Yes, that, that's true. But why did Potiphar do it? Do you know why I think he did it? Why he blazed with anger? Because in his heart, he knew the kind of promiscuous woman he was married to. Guys, if you've got a faithful, God-fearing woman, you thank God for her every day. Ladies, if you've got a man you know, like Joseph, is safe round women, thank God for him every day. And if you are thinking that, you know, my, you know, the old, yeah, my wife doesn't understand me, crying on a female shoulder. Really? Really? Your wife understands you better than you know. And I am tired of hearing stories of folk in ministry. I've just got a whole, I've lost count of characters I know who just cross boundaries. For the decade I was at my last church, from the word go, I didn't realize it, I was picking up my predecessor committed spiritual shipwreck in adultery. And I took the church over, and humanly, if I'd have known at the beginning what I knew at the end, I'd have needed the Archangel Michael with his ID saying, you've got to go there, son. Because I picked up wreckage from his shipwreck for the decade I was there. That's just the truth. And initially arriving as pastor, there's all this sort of sense of, I wonder if he's got a bit going on on the side, because of the diabolical deceit enacted by my predecessor. But let me tell you, sexual sin and adultery is forgivable. You need to know that, like every other sin. But in my observation, and theological and biblical judgment, no sin binds us or blinds us more than sexual sin. That's why 1 Corinthians 5 says, every sin a man commits is outside of his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. We lose our brains on this, and you've got to get a grip of your largest sexual organ every day, your brain. As we think in our hearts, so we are. Am I making this kind of clear enough? <laughs> and 
I know when I've been places and I've spoken this before, and people, oh, we shouldn't really talk about this in church. And you're thinking, what planet do you inhabit? Because out there, we are in a massively sexualized and sex-saturated culture where we want little girls of five and six to be dressed up as tarts. No wonder our Muslim friends are appalled at our promiscuity. No wonder they think if this is Christian, they don't want to be it. Lock up your daughters. And, and by the way, you may have noticed it's got something to do in the Bible here. I'm not, I'm not touching on these subjects because I think we'll have some form of spiritual titillation. <laughs> it's because it's in the Word. And it keeps coming. It's in Genesis chapter 38 and Genesis 39 and lots and lots of other places in Scripture too. Is there something you've got to put right here? Sisters, brothers, then in the name of Jesus, put it right this weekend. I don't know if you've seen that great Bob Newhart thing on counseling. You know, it's a, go on YouTube, Bob Newhart, Google it or something. And it's an old clip from one of his things. And he's a psychologist, by the way. He's a, he's a, he don't used to do these marvelous monologues. And this lady comes in with a problem, and he just sits there, and he, just, he says, now, madam, you've got five minutes. I'm going to give you just two words. Shall I write them down? No, no, I think most people got it, right? And he says, stop it! And she goes, what? <laughs> Let me say it again. Stop it! And she goes, well, well I can't. Because she's got this fear about being buried alive in a box. He says, well, stop it! And she's going, oh! You know, and it's hilariously funny. Stop it. Right now. For your soul's good your family's well-being, your own personal reputation and integrity. And of course, to the poor friends. <sighs> Isn't it amazing how sometimes close friends become eventually just somebody on a Christmas card list? Well, here he is. He's thrown into prison with these, uh, this cupbearer and this baker. And the, when they get the... Uh, the interpretation from the cupbearer assures Joseph, yes, I, I, of course, you know, my release, I get out of here, Joseph, I will not forget you. And he does. For two whole years. Has anybody ever let you, let you down? Any friend ever let you down? Let me turn it around. Have you ever let anybody down? <laughs> it's hard being honest in God's presence, isn't it? We let people down. We're all like that. We can mess it up. And every one of us here are both perpetrators of and victims of this thing called friendship when it goes pear-shaped. I know there are people I've let down because I said I'd be there and I overtaxed myself and I just couldn't fit it in. I said I'd do this and I didn't do it, etc. And I know people have let me down. They've promised, oh, they've promised so much. Been lying through their teeth. You know, you are fortunate in life. I remember reading this as a young guy. I thought, that's a bit rich. You are fortunate in life to go through life, and at the end of it, look back and think, I have six friends of whom I could say I could depend upon them for my life. I thought, that's nonsense to say it's probably pretty near the truth six people it's not many and even they who knows health circumstances may not come through that, that's why joseph scrivener had it right didn't he and what a friend we have in jesus he said do thy friends despise forsake thee <laughs> joseph's did now, you put all that together, as we must, perverse families, promiscuous colleagues, poor friends, put all that together and you say, now, Joseph, let's just go over and interview son. How are you feeling here then in prison? Do you remember that joker who said, you remember, he hasn't remembered you? He hasn't, no. So guess what? You are, a, you are a big loser, son. Look at all the stuff you've gone through. Yeah. So where's your God in all that, eh? Come on. Have you got a comment, Joseph? Of course, the narrative doesn't finish there. 
trials are necessary, temptations are normal. Warning, trials are necessary, danger, temptations are normal. Three, relief. God is near. Come back to chapter 39 and uh, notice this uh, astonishing phrase. In fact, it's repeated so we don't miss it. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, but verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. And then verse 3, the Lord was with him. And then when he's lobbed into prison, verse 21, the Lord was with him. And lest we miss it, because we weren't paying attention, verse 23, because the Lord was with Joseph. Have, have you got that? I, I mean, you're kind of, you're getting the run of this now, aren't you? In, in, in technical terms, this is called an inclusio. It's, it, the, word, it's the word inclusion. Uh, it's a posh word. It's, a, it's a, a word from describing literary. It's a literary genre. It's a literary character, characteristic. An inclusio is when you say something and then you top it off at the end with the same. So how many, how many beatitudes are there? Well, there are nine blesseds, yes, but there are only actually eight. And then the final one is expanded. How do we know that? Because Matt, Matthew is using a literary device called an inclusio. Blessed are the kingdom of heaven. And he, start, he starts with the kingdom of heaven, he wraps it up with the kingdom of heaven. It's an inclusio. It includes, it says, now this little piece hangs together. It's a narrative, have you got it? Right, okay, we've got it. So what's the deal then? Well, Joseph is sold into slavery, but the Lord's with him. And when he goes into a particular home, the Lord's there with him. He works his socks off, everything prospers under him, the Lord's with him. And at the end, when through his faithfulness to God, he's lobbed into prison, things get worse, the Lord was with him. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's not a statement of what we call the, omnisci the, the omnipresence of God. God's everywhere. It's not saying that. Nor is it like flippant. You know, the, the, there was a vicar, you know, um, in, a, in a little village. And the village bobby had got somebody for a minor offense. Everybody in the village except the vicar. And it just so happened there was a hill in this village. And, and at the bottom of it was a set of traffic lights. And one day the, the cop was there filling in his pocketbook, bouncing up and down and looking like, you know, important. And uh, down a hill on his bike comes the vicar. And as he gets near to the lights, they suddenly go red and he screeches to a halt within an inch of the white line. And the copper looks at him and said, oh, he said, I nearly had you there, vicar. Oh, <laughs> I nearly had you. He said, you did, my man. He said, you did, but, but the Lord was with me. He said, that'll do, vicar. Two on a bicycle. <laughs> Doesn't mean that either. It's what the old Puritans used to talk about, the manifested presence of God, the felt presence of God. The undeniable sense that no matter what you're going through, all hell is against you. But if God be for us, who can be against us? The God who comes near. The God who watches over his people. The God who's always there. Just like sometimes you can look out when kids went into kindergarten or whatever, and you could look from a distance and see a little Johnny or Sarah playing away. And they didn't know you were looking, but you were you were 24-7 on their case. And who in these days wouldn't be? That little girl, April Jones, etc. Don't you think God keeps an eye on his children when they're going through it, when it's tough? An old hymn captures it right. When through fiery trial thy pathway shall lie, his grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame those furnace blasts. The flame shall not hurt thee, his only design, thy dross to consume, <laughs> and thy gold to refine. The Lord being with us. Of course, in the most literal sense of the term, Lo, within the manger lies he who built the starry skies. Our God contracted to a span and comprehensibly made man. That's why Jesus bears the name Emmanuel, God 
with us. And you'll see that shadow of a cross. Remember Harry Belafonte? And man shall live forevermore because of Christmas Day. No, Harry, you got it wrong, son. We don't live forevermore because of Christmas Day. We can't live forevermore if he had not come. But we don't live forevermore because of the cradle. But we live forevermore because of the cross. That there the God who is with us in Christ becomes the God who is for us. Who pays our debt, who dies our death, who carries our load so we may go free. It's always good to get to these things because this is where the whole Joseph narrative is headed. It's where the whole Old Testament's headed. It's what the Bible's all about. It's about the God who comes to save. Last year I wrote a book for Christmas called The Incredible Journey. The Incredible Journey of God coming to planet Earth. And we just wandered our way through the great story of the Old Testament, starting well, Genesis 3, crashing badly, the rest of the Old Testament detouring off, and then suddenly arriving on time, Jesus comes and then journeying on to the eternal state. Because of him, life turns around and life begins again. Well, there's another water skier. He's doing something that I uh, found hard to do. There we were in the uh, island of Jersey years ago and uh, these friends were determined that this old guy wasn't quite so old and was going to water ski. Had the rubber ice suit on, had the big life jacket, had the water skis. And it's very easy to water ski, you know. All you have to do is just bounce around the water like a you know, cork and then you bend your knees and they hand you that handle and you hold on to it. And because it's attached to a power source outside yourself, you're bobbing around, you just come out the waves and you just... That's the theory. <laughs> Fact. I have drunk half the English Channel. I've let go of that rope more times than I can remember. I'm crying for my granny. I'm a complete disaster. And I'm aching in places I didn't even know belonged to me. And for the umpteenth time, this guy, umpteenth time, this guy, Pete, comes around a big power. And he looks over the side with a piteous eye and he says, Steve, do you know what faith is? And I'm tempted, you know, to think, I could be smart here. So would you like a short dissertation on the nature of saving faith from William? And I thought, no, don't even come out with it. So I just looked up and said, uh, <clears throat> remind me, Pete. He said, Steve, faith. Faith is holding on. Don't let go of the handle. I knew there was something about water skiing I was missing. Because you see, every time it kind of goes, gone again. Because I didn't hold on to the handle. What is faith? Believe in anything? No, no, no. It's trusting in the Bible sense. It's trusting God. It's faith in itself is neither here nor there. It's in whom it is. And that little handle is attached to a rope. And that rope is attached to a big power source. And that big power source, the power boat, if you hold on to it, it pulls you out the water and you skim the waves. Are you drowning? You got any rivers you think are uncrossable? Have you got any mountains you can't tunnel through? God still specializes in things thought impossible. He can do just what none other can do. And faith is therefore holding on to a power outside of yourself that is incomprehensible in its immensity. It is the power of God's love in Jesus Christ to remodel us, to reform us, to conform us to the image of His Son. Living with trials. Oh, God help you. God bless you. 
God strengthen you. God cleanse you and forgive you if that's appropriate. And then may God use you, Joseph-like, to be a blessing to many. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these wonderfully accessible, deceptively simple, utterly profound passages in your word. We thank you for the life of Joseph and his faithfulness. But beyond that, Lord, we thank you most of all for the story it tells us about you and your faithfulness, your kindness, and your great purposes beyond all our weaknesses and all our failures and all our petty and screwed up into a ball lives. Lord, thank you that when you write us into your plans and purposes, then our lives become expansive because we know we matter. We matter to you. We're loved by you in Christ. And then we begin to matter for your purposes and to others. Father, only you know every heart bowed before you now. But may you, by your gracious, sweet spirit, in the name of the Lord Jesus, come and convict and cleanse us where that's appropriate and heal us and restore us in our brokenness if that's our situation. And for those situations that we can't get our heads around, those relationships that we don't know how to handle and cope with, those who've perpetrated evil against us, and those we've hurt. Lord, have mercy, we pray. And grant, Lord, that we will not sink, as one poet puts it, to be a clod. Afresh, make me thy fuel, flame of God. Refine as fire, my heart's one desire is to be holy. birth it anew and afresh in all our hearts. In Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake, to whom be the glory now and forevermore. Amen.